The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 29th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One question that I always find fascinating in examining American politics is, are we in trouble because we have too little democracy or too much? Lately, especially if you're a Democrat, the answer is clearly too little. But for long periods of time, it has been too much. We haven't protected the rights of minorities because the majority can trample them. Even if we had wise, forward-thinking plans regarding, say, the environment or criminal justice, it's hard to get those plans passed because they are unpopular, have always been unpopular, changing a little on the environment, but not greatly. Most experts agree, let me give you one example, most experts agree that the mortgage deduction, it's bad policy, but even politicians who pride themselves on favoring good policies dare not propose ending it because they will get defeated essentially by democracy. On the other hand, the Senate is made up in an undemocratic way, and the Senate's a big problem these days. Of course, the Senate has always been undemocratic. Every good thing the Senate has ever done, from approving the Louisiana Purchase to the New Deal, was done with the most and least populous states, each getting two senators. The results of the last election do offer some data on the issue of democracy, helpful or hurtful. On the democracy is good, but the lack of democracy is bad sign of the argument? Well, we have congressional maps of North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Virginia that had to be redrawn, so the court said, because they were gerrymandered. That's an example of an undemocratic practice, gerrymandering. And if these maps weren't redrawn, if those states had voted under the old gerrymandered system, the Cook Political Report reports that the Republicans would have won the House of Representatives. And that's not bad because I'm endorsing the Republicans or endorsing the Democrats. That's bad because it would be an undemocratic representation of the will of the people. But you can't gerrymander a state. Now look at Georgia. Georgia has 10 million people. Two senators for 10 million people means the people of Georgia are underrepresented in the Senate. They're like not as egregious or bad as Texas or California, but they are underrepresented in the Senate. And yet they still might go out and very democratically vote for two Republicans. You know, in, in the conversations I've had on this show and looking at experts, it seems like that's ever so slightly the more likely outcome. Now, you could argue the reason this matters and the reason the Senate hangs in the balance is because the undemocratic makeup of the Senate. But quite often, we have democracy. Democracy meaning the people get to participate. They exert their will. And their will is something like two Georgia senators get reelected. And I was also reading in the Cook Political Report, they were talking about money, how money warps politics. And this was always held out as one of the undemocratic horrors of our system. Only it seems less true lately than it has been for many, many years. Most of the money in 2020 went to Democrats, disproportionately losing Democratic Senate races. So that's not proof that we're being hurt by too much democracy. It is evidence that one commonly cited example of the triumph of an undemocratic aspect of American democracy mm, might not actually be that important. Now, for me, if I had to pick one doable reform, I'd say scrap the filibuster. Then again, if the Senate is, you know, 51-49, that won't mean much. But as a body, the Senate becoming a mostly obstructive institution 
it really does stymie progress. But overall, it does seem like we very much have to work to overcome some of the flaws in our system, some of the democratic and popular flaws in our system in order to make the system more functionally democratic. On the show today, I spiel about that great cooling saucer. It went and cooled some things today. What did it cool? The $2,000 stimulus check. Uncool. Nope. Cool, says Commander of Cool, Mitch McConnell. But first, perhaps you've heard that 2020 is the worst year ever. It is not. In fact, tomorrow, we'll go back a thousand years to bring you a year that makes 2020 look like it took place inside a wonderland, inside a larger rainbow. Today, we don't even have to go back that far. The Atlantic's James Fallows looks at 1968. He compares it to our current anise and finds it even more horribilous than this one. So let's consider the question, is 2020 really the worst year ever? Well, James Fallows, writing in The Atlantic, tackled this question in a way or compared it to another year that some say might be the worst ever, 1968, recent year of American history. And he says, comparing the two years, well, well, instead of listening to me say what he says, he's right here. Thanks for coming on again, Jim. Nice to talk to you again, Mike. Thanks for having me. First, I want to know what was the assignment. Was it broad or, hey, is this the worst year ever? Or was it more, can you compare 1968 to 2020? I think part of the, the background of that piece, which I did for The Atlantic, was sort of a generational knowledge uh, function within The Atlantic itself. Uh, many, most of The Atlantic staffers are the ages of my children or younger. You know, I'm a gentleman of the baby boomer era. And so when I was in college in 1968, I I just wanted to um, explain to them that what the U.S. was going through several months ago, which is the time I wrote that, was traumatic. But it wasn't the only traumatic moment the U.S. had experienced. You know, there's no sensible comparison of badness, but there have been other difficult times in, in American history and world history. So to just talk about the empirical, which is not how people experience the world, but it is empirical, we had 16,000 American deaths in Vietnam. And even though we are engaged in Afghanistan and Iraq to this day, the deaths are in the in at least one of those conflicts, actually the single digits. That has to be a major factor when comparing the two years. It, it certainly was. And the fact that there was a war that, you know, 1968, if just talking about Vietnam, was the hinge in many ways. In the beginning of the year, early in the year, uh, late January or February, was the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, which historians who have gone back with their historical knowledge have said actually was some kind of Pyrrhic victory for the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese forces, but it seemed at the time like a victory for them. And it was when Walter Cronkite, then dominant in U.S. uh, media, said that he'd changed his mind about the the Vietnam War. So there was that. There was the the challenge of the incumbent President Lyndon Johnson by um, first Eugene McCarthy, then Robert F. Kennedy, and the way in which that became so um, heated that Johnson announced he would not run for re-election. There was the horrific assassination of Martin Luther King, which was part of the general just horror of the time and Vietnam-related because he had become a critic of the Vietnam War. And then, of course, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy and just the the accumulation of these things really made you feel as if, you know, the center cannot hold, things fall apart. And the fact that there was a drafted military, 
drafted U.S. military during the Vietnam War is a sort of incomparable difference Mm -hmm. between the mood of that era and this era. Right. And when we look back, I just ask listeners to think about a terrible time when you're in the middle of it and don't know that it is, for instance, going to be the worst year. All that you know is that the year before there were 11,000 casualties and the year before that 6,000 and now you're on your way to something like 16,000 and who knows you don't know if next year it's going to be somehow 25,000 so it might even seem more horrible than it is I agree with that and there was the parallel not knowing where it was going to end horror of assassinations this was four and a half years after John F. Kennedy had been shot, of course, and, and history seemed to change then. And the sequence within about a two-month period, a little more than two months, of Martin Luther King, historical leader of the civil rights movement when he was in his early 40s, and then um, Robert F. Kennedy two months later when he was also in his 40s, there was a sense of where was this going to end? To have right. two, as somebody who probably would have won the presidential election against Richard Nixon and somebody who was a moral leader of the country and had won the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years earlier, to have both of them eliminated by assassin's bullets. Was this going to be an every two months phenomenon for the foreseeable future? Right, right. So again, imagine that. Imagine if Bernie Sanders was assassinated. You know, I don't even want to say it. No, obviously no equivalent to Martin Luther King. But imagine if whatever, I don't want to even breathe their names and, you know, say this civil rights leader or that civil rights leader. Imagine dealing with that on top of the tragedies of coronavirus and the tragedies of unrest in the wake of the George Floyd killing. It's almost unfathomable. It is. And the other sort of string to this chord or note to this chord was the political upheaval. There was within the Democratic Party, of course, Lyndon Johnson was just less than three and a half years after his enormous landslide win over Barry Goldwater in 1964. After Johnson had become president, after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, he won still, I think, the largest, maybe with the exception of FDR, it was the largest popular vote and electoral vote win. It was, it was a huge victory for Lyndon Johnson, and he was passing in 64 and 65 and early 66 uh, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. He was thinking this could be the beginning of the Great Society, and to have him become this beast set, tragic, Lear-like, defeated figure challenged first by Eugene McCarthy, then by Bobby Kennedy, then uh, Hubert Humphrey as vice president ending up with a nomination. You had the sense of the Democratic Party blowing itself apart in a way that is unlike anything that even today's Democratic Party has been through. Right, right. But you don't know that things are going to change. So Kennedy's assassinated and Malcolm X is assassinated. And you're wondering, is this just a feature of American politics? And then MLK's assassinated and Robert Kennedy's assassinated. And people must have been thinking about it then like we think about school shootings now. Do we just have to accept this as, you know, one of the ways that American politics is quote unquote conducted? By the way, I have this theory, speaking of school assassinations, that our politicians used to be soft targets and some of the angst, some of the anger would show up in people trying to assassinate politicians. So because they're, we we're able to do so, we've hardened those targets and schools have become softer targets. I don't know how true that is, but it does feel, just to analogize, political assassinations were then and for a while after then, you know, through the 70s, as common and as 
made us feel as impotent as these school shootings do now. I think that is a very apt comparison. And if we sort of scroll ahead in through history's arc a little bit, in the late 60s, it was the case that the youngest Kennedy brother, Teddy Kennedy, Edward uh, M. Kennedy, of course, he had his Chappaquiddick crash in 1969. But before that, I know from interviewing him then that the main factor in whether or not he would run for president was the near certainty that he would be an assassination uh, target. Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford in 1975 or 76 was the target, I believe, of two assassination attempts. I worked for Jimmy Carter after that, and of course yeah, there was within weeks of, the, of each other, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Lynette Squeaky Fromm and Sarah, somebody else were, were the the attention. I, I think there was the people who were trying to attack him. Of course, George Wallace was uh, shot and paralyzed in, I believe, in 1972. So you had this, it was that era's counterpart of today's horrific school shooting, something that you feel is just a ineradicable and horrific part of our American reality. Yeah. There was a flu then too, or there was a uh, a bit of a pandemic in 68 as well. I had forgotten until I read about it in your piece. It was, I think it was called the Hong Kong flu then, I believe. That was the era when you named things diseases by their point of origin. I believe it was an H1N1 uh, virus. I'm, I'm not sure. What's interesting is that its worldwide toll ended up being significant, I believe, in the hundreds of thousands of victims, like other pandemics between the one in 1918 and the one we're going through now. But because of everything else that was going on, I was not conscious of it during that time. And uh, I just learned about it only by looking up because just so much else was going on that there was not brain space for this uh, problem, too. Yeah. So far, we've talked about terrible things going on in 1968, how maybe some of those specific things don't have an analog in 2020, the massive coronavirus pandemic in 2020, not an exact analog in 68. But then you have urban unrest, rioting. Perhaps there are different phrases for it these days. We're not so quick to affix the word rioting. But can you compare the scope and the psychic cost of those similar incidents in the two years you're talking about. So they're an interesting complementary um, pair. On the one hand, the fury of 1968 was, I think, born out of a sense of disappointed expectations because the early 1960s in the civil rights era had been a time of profound cruelty, but also of a kind of political and moral clarity. There had been the famed murders in Philadelphia, Mississippi, of three civil rights workers, two white and one black. There had been sit-ins and bus-ins and marches and the Selma March and all of Martin Luther King's demonstrations. And you had the then-dominant evening TV shows for middle America and middle-class white America were of peaceful black and white groups being fire-hosed and set upon by police dogs and police horses horses and all the rest, mainly in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and elsewhere. This led to the the civil rights legislation of 64 and 65 in a sense that there was going to be progress. The United States was going through a step in the enfranchisement of of people who had been been excluded. And then when you had, I think, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King in early 1968 in April and prepared the ground for a reaction to 
incidents of racially biased police violence as there have been for decades or, or and more in American history. That that the Watts riots, I believe, in 1965 were a precursor to this. But then there was widespread protest in the spring of 1968 after the killing of Martin Luther King, which led then to having the National Guard deployed in many many American cities. So. In one way, that situation was somewhat better because you had the sense of legislation on an arc of bending towards justice and then it being, uh, you know, shockingly uh, reversed by, by the killing of Martin Luther King. It was worse because of the heavy handedness of what, what Donald Trump might have wanted to do in 2020 was actually happening in 1968. And then so it was in a general atmosphere of things going more, more kinetically worse right. in 1968 than they were, were doing now. Right. And to compare the two, I wonder what's worse, to have this one never-ending story or to have the randomness of the uh, of a coronavirus smacking against uh, riots and protests. Um, maybe that just is more discordant and leaves you whipsawed. I don't know. Everything was connected and everything was going to hell at once. Mm-hmm. It was going to hell in Vietnam. It was going to hell politically. It was going to head and going to hell in in killing uh, political leaders. It was going to hell uh, just in the fabric of, of civic life. So it was all one big nightmare, and you didn't know where it was going to lead. Whether again, this would be permanent assassinations, would be a new kind of a literal civil war. This time. Things are connected. The pandemic is fundamentally connected to the economic collapse, which in turn is collected to many other aspects of American equality and and inequality. And I think they're connected to in the both unintentional and intentional mis- Governance we've been subjected to in the last uh, in the last in in this year, misgovernance of handling the coronavirus, mis misgovernance at the local level and in police violence. So I think we have this out of nowhere phenomenon of the pandemic. Yes, one was going to happen at some point, but its scale was out of nowhere, and the. This has been going on forever. We're tired phenomenon of police violence. Right. And those two things, you know, they have a temporal connection, but they're more randomly uh, joined, as you say. And also, I think we have a sense it's more likely that what we're going through now will end. There is a presidential election. At some point, there was going to be a vaccine. There will be some reckoning on police policing issues. So an end is more in sight for what we're going through now than it was in 1968, I think. Yeah. And speaking of elections, and you couldn't have known this in May when you wrote the piece, 1968, America elects Nixon to 2020, America defeats Donald Trump. That alone would argue for the superiority of 1960, <laughs> of, of 2020 as a year. Yes, comma. <laughs> and, and if one were to draw the comparison, it is arguable and we'll never know that had there not been a pandemic or with a pandemic, if Trump and his team had responded in some different more competent, more humane way, it's conceivable that Trump might have been reelected, which would have been the pairing with Nixon in 1968. Obviously, Nixon was the outsider trying to unseat Hubert Humphrey with Lyndon Johnson. Trump is the, the incumbent, but that would have been the emotional resonant chord to 68. 
Yeah. So the article was titled, Is This the Worst Year in Modern American History? There is a law of journalism that when a headline poses a question, the answer is always no. Uh, The subhead says comparing 2020 to 1968 offers some disquieting lessons for the present which isn't exactly an answer no, though why would you put no in the subhead? (laughs) But if we were to say, what do you think? Is this year worse? The worst year in modern American history? I think you're hinting at no, but it's bad. Yes, it is bad. So yes, it's bad. Yes slash no, we can't really compare degrees of suffering. And incomparably more people have died for reasons outside their control this year than was the case in in, in 1968. And the economic damage is very different than in 68, when there still was a, a sense of a buoyant economy for most white people in America. Uh, and that that's the economy is really taking a, a hit. 2020 ends with the election results, and it ends with these vaccines. And 1968 ended with Richard Nixon preparing for office and renewed bombing in Vietnam. So if you yeah. wanted to see uh, the arc of history of each year, you could say there's a more positive, less worst arc for 2020. James Fallows is a staff writer at The Atlantic with his wife, Deborah Fallows. They are the author of Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Jim, again, thank you so much. Uh, Mike, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And now the spiel. Chuck Schumer has a question. Well, he has a preamble leading to a question. A vast majority of the public, Republican and Democrat, strongly support $2,000 checks. An overwhelming bipartisan majority in the House supports 2,000 checks. Senate Democrats strongly support $2,000 checks. Even President Trump supports $2,000 checks. There's one question left today. Do Senate Republicans join with the rest of America in supporting $2,000 checks? I mean, that is a question, grammatically speaking. It's not a question, practically speaking, because of Mr. Mitch McConnell. I mean, sure, Donald Trump said he would like the checks to be worth $2,000, and the House did pass a measure for $2,000 checks. And then maybe you heard this analysis, and now the ball is in Mitch McConnell's court. No, it's not. What court? There is no court. You think there's a court? I mean, there's maybe an expanse of asphalt or concrete, but Mitch McConnell decides whether he's putting up netting or erecting a hoop or constructing whatever sports apparatus you think might have a court. He decides if there's a court. He did decide, rather, he didn't even consider making a decision. There just ain't no court. There's no way to tally points on this non-court. The scorekeeper has been furloughed. The scoreboard has been unplugged. I'm telling you, no court. If you have a ball, you're probably just going to have to toss it up in the air over and over to yourself. Make up a game because none of the other kids want to play with you because Mitch McConnell said so. Mitch McConnell declares, no ball, no court, nothing's going to happen. And to be clear, I'm not absolving Mitch McConnell's fellow Republican senators. He has his power not because he is defying their will, but because he is embodying it. And as for the so-called head of his party, well, to analyze Trump's role in all of this, in fact, you know what? Let's cue up a remembrance of things Trump. Because lest we forget what Donald Trump did was to not act 
at any point in intervening in the relief bill, the discussions of the relief bill, when it was debated, when it was drafted, no action. He took no action during that process. What he did was he talked after it was passed, using the word disgrace, and then he chose not to act to veto the passed bill. That was actually a good thing. So I wonder if there is a phrase that we should remember, maybe a phrase that Trump says again, lest we forget, a phrase that Trump uses frequently that addresses this habit of doing a lot of talking, but not pairing it with action. It's obviously just a politician talking about a popular topic without doing anything, which is exactly what Trump ran against. Obama is all talk and no action. The years of all talk, no action politicians like her will end. Typical politician, all talk, no action. We will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Donald Trump used the phrase all talk, no action on the campaign trail in his inaugural address about Congressman John Lewis here about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, They've been all talk and they've been no action. And now it's even worse. Uh, Now it's not even talk. Not even talk, which is so terrible. The worst, not to even have talk. Donald Trump, more than most, but much like many, obsesses over the failings in others that he recognizes in himself. He is, for instance, essentially a con man who was quoted 50 years ago in the New York Times, fretting about being made a fool of, quote, I don't want to be made anybody's sucker. That was in 1980. And he was talking about (laughs) a thought he had in 1964. I mean, this explains why he's always talking about all talk, no action, and not doing anything about it. He is a man who ran for president to gain a bigger platform, a bigger megaphone, and then realized if he actually occupied the Oval Office, it would grant him an unignorable megaphone. It's the one platform where his words become news stories. They become policy simply because he said or tweeted them. There will never be a need for action, given what he wants out of the situation, which is to be paid attention to, because action can be tedious, action can be fallible, When you talk, your words carry so much weight. That's all he ever wanted. To Trump, the presidency was always more bully, less pulpit, right until the end, when he could verbally deride, then almost derail, a life-saving government measure. Now they say he will foster his own Trumpish media ecosystem, but I think it will be hard for him to recede to occupying only a small niche in the overall conversation. Of course, It's easy for me to say that, especially now that the American people have acted. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Shana Roth, who's 38% action, 15% words, 35% sleep, and 12% talking about sleep. Margaret Kelly, just producer, is 65% action, 30% lights, camera, and 5% ranting to the crew that we're the future and all of Hollywood is depending on us. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. She's 20% talk, 50% action, and 30% rock. So more rock, less talk, but more action, less rock. As we know, action beats rock. This is just producer Daniel Schrader's last day. He is moving on to another project at Slate that is his action. 
His talk there will be, I don't know, as it has been, maybe something about superhero movies or Real Housewives or Carly Rae Jepsen or James Charles and Elijah Daniel. I think I'm going to say those are two people who Daniel has strong opinions about. I think I remember him saying stuff about them. Oh, and puns, the puns, the baking, the musicals. The new project will encompass all of that, especially with a dot-com suffix. He deserves this new project rather than have to put up and produce what are essentially my interests, flags, politics, sports, the idea that Pete Buttigieg seems, I don't know, okay, like an okay guy. Anyway, it's all a liberation for Daniel. He was, we should note, for significant stretches, the only producer holding the gist together. It was him and me, but quite often, mostly him. He trained, by my count, for other producers who all, I am sure, said to themselves, I think we could get good at this, but never as good as Daniel. So thank you, Daniel Schrader, and please remember the most important words that I have ever said, words that you could probably repeat by heart. And I quote myself, I thought I sent that file. Wait, it didn't go through? The gist. People say actions speak louder than words, but those are the same people who never mention the danger of pantomiming the words for fire in a crowded theater. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.